the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, we're at Photo World again with another wing commander, Grant Burr, who joined the RAAF in 1996. 2001 to 2004, he was a line fighter pilot, during which time he deployed to fly combat missions in Iraq as part of Operation Falconer. He was then on exchange with the Canadian forces. In 2009, he was appointed Executive Officer 77 Squadron and focused his time on ensuring the squadron's junior aircrew maintained a camaraderie and passion for fighter flying. Returning to Canada in 2012, completing the Canadian Forces Command and Staff Course. He was next posted as Deputy Director, Joint Strike Forder Transition Team. In 2015, saw him again deployed overseas, this time on Operation Okra. In 2016, he became Commanding Officer 77 Squadron, then returning to Okra as leader of 77 Squadron Combat Missions in 2017. He currently serves on the Officer Aviation Specialist Stream in Air Combat Group. His conversion training to F-35A will commence in 2021. Burry, welcome. Thanks, Gareth. Great to be with you. You looking forward to 2021 and your conversion training? Yeah, well, I think uh, like any fighter pilot who's been uh, working in an office for a couple of years, uh, the prospect of getting back to flying is, um, you know, incredibly appealing. So, yeah, I guess in short, I can't wait. When were you last in a plane flying yourself? Uh, last flew the F-18 uh, last year, so 2019. Um but, you know, I, I would consider myself very much a part-timer at that point. It, it was my last, uh, uh, I guess, point I felt current and uh, like I was contributing proactively was uh, when I finished up as CO 77 Squadron. Yeah. Well, let's talk about 77 Squadron for a little while because it's got a very proud history. What's it that? Does. What it does and will continue to have. What's it, what was it like? It was a massive uh, privilege and honour. Um, I think the thing that, uh, hit me very early on in the command was just uh, what an incredible team of people uh, made up the squadron at that point in time and um, you know continue to do so I'm constantly uh, impressed by the minor miracles that uh, the technicians achieved keeping uh, what's now a uh, an aging airplane the F-18 Hornet keeping that uh, aircraft in tip-top shape so you know, I guess in a nutshell, for me, it was it was a pinnacle of my career, and I can't imagine um, anything topping that. Mm. A lot of people that I've spoken to talk about the camaraderie that exists within the RAAF, especially between pilot and aircrew. How is that inculcated into the training of a of an air force personnel? Between pilot and... Well, be, well across, across the whole mm, spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, very early on uh, in Air Force, you, uh, you know, you pretty quickly pick up on um, the culture of the organisation, which is very much focused on a one-team approach. Um, coming to Air Combat Group, uh, 
and starting to get immersed in the fighter and striker culture. Um, it, it was clear early on that it required the whole team to come together yeah. to deliver a serviceable aeroplane that was combat ready. So, um, you know, some of my best memories have been with uh, uh, of getting to know uh, the men and women that fix our aeroplanes and maintain them uh, from the early days of my career up at Tyndall in the Northern Territory right through to mm. uh, to today. So. You joined the RAAF, what, 1996? Yeah, straight out of school. I, uh, I um, had a, an aspiration and a passion for learning to fly uh, as I was finishing up at school. Quickly realised that that... Uh, that cost a, a fair bit of money to do <laughs> and that there was this uh, avenue through the uh, RAAF that I knew nothing about uh, where someone was going to cover that uh, for me. So I uh, marched into the recruiting office and told them I was ready to start pilot training uh, the next day and uh, they promptly told me I was far too immature <laughs> and that I should go to the military academy and um, do some study for a few years. What, you were 17, 18, I suppose? That's correct, yeah. So, um, you know, with uh, quite a crinkly grin on my face, I uh, <laughs> went down to Canberra and um, did a bit more school for a few years, but ultimately got me to uh, the end state, which is um, yeah. what I love doing. Well, pretty quick jump, though. If you joined in 1996, in 2001, you're now a line fighter pilot with 75 squadron that's a pretty quick advance yeah i was i was just fortunate with the timing of the courses um once i'd done pilot training there was essentially no break um so i was able to get through the the various uh fighter training courses and out to the squadron uh, i was posted up to the nt to mm -hmm. 75 squadron um in 2001 and yeah it was just an amazing couple of years for someone listening to you right now doesn't know what a line fighter pilot is mm. can you explain yeah sure so when you join the air force um, as a pilot there's a series of uh, training courses that you'll go through um, and if you want to fly fighter aircraft then once you finish your initial pilot training you'll go through uh, further training courses on our lead-in fighter hawk aircraft uh, and ultimately onto an operational conversion onto a aircraft type such as the F-18 or F-35. So if a young person joins the Air Force today, for argument's sake, mm. and does pilot training mm. and gets into the Hercules as a pilot, mm. is it easy an easy jump into fighter pilots? Uh, typically what uh, will happen is uh, everyone will do the same uh, uh, pilot training course right. which is in the order of 12 months worth of training um, and at the uh, completion of that based on the recommendations of the instructors mm. uh, aircrew will be streamed to a particular platform so you might be streamed to fly uh, Hercules or P8s or fighter, fighter aircraft or any of the other aircraft that RAF operates. Right. Um, and that's the that's the traditional path. Uh, we do have a number of people who've done incredibly well, well in air combat group. Like one of those, it's about to take off. That's that it. Love, no, oh, it's gone. So, uh, yeah, a number of people uh, or a smaller number of people who've done incredibly well who've actually spent a few years flying something like a Hercules, uh, 
or a C17 who've then um, expressed an interest to, to try out for uh, jets and have succeeded. Mm. And, uh, you know, some of our pe- best people have uh, backgrounds in other aircraft types. Sure. It may be a silly question, but flying a Hercules as opposed to flying a 747 for Qantas or flying an F-35, uh, which, silly question, which is the hardest? I think they all have different challenges. Like I've never, I've never flown a transport aeroplane um, or an airliner, so uh, I can't really give you a, a clear answer to that. I, I just, I do think they're very different roles, though. So, mm. um, uh, to give you an example, um, in, in a transport world, uh, a lot of the um, pressures I think are to do with long distance, long mm. duration. Mm flights um, away from home a lot of the time um, potentially reacting at short notice to things like uh, humanitarian disasters Uh, in air combat group though we're very much focused on uh, the complex war fighting and the worst case scenarios uh, and that takes years and years of training and a lot of our uh, day-to-day work is focused on developing the right attitude and skill sets in our people to be able to throw them into an uncertain environment mm. like that and know that they'll succeed. Okay. Uh, we, we know so much, I've mentioned to a couple of other people that we've been talking to about the RAAF's role in the early part of the 20th century into the 20th century, but in the 21st century, we read in the press about Australian Defence Force being involved overseas, but we don't really know the details. Now, one of your overseas encounters was when Operation Falconer was announced in 2003. How did you get involved and the things you can tell me, what was involved? Yeah, so operational Operation Falconer was essentially Australia's contribution to the second Gulf War. Yep. Uh, and in the context of um, uh, how Air Combat group was involved and how uh, I ended up uh, being one of the air crew that participated. Um, I was posted to 75 Squadron in the Northern Territory. Uh, Government made the choice uh, or the decision that Australia was going to contribute, amongst other things, a squadron of F-18s. Yep, the Hornet. Uh, Yeah, the uh, classic Hornet. And um, I was just fortunate enough to be in the right spot at the right time. Uh, that 75 Squadron was the the squadron selected to deploy over there. The current Chief of Air Force was the CO at the time, uh, and it was um, you know for a junior uh, pilot in 75 Squadron, it, it was a, a, you know an absolute experience, and things happened very quickly <laughs> in the few weeks leading up to the decision for us to deploy. So. You know, it's just a matter at that point of um, taking the training you'd learnt up till that point and going over and doing the best job. Yeah. You could. So you said you were a junior pilot at that Very stage. Much so, so yeah. There, there were senior pilots as well. Yeah. What was the learning process or the exchange of ideas process between you, the junior, and them, the senior? Yeah, it was very much a, um, a follow-on from the training environment where you have an instructor or a you know a senior person take you under their their wing and pardon the pun and um, <laughs> um, uh, follow me. I'll show you how th- how we're going to do this. Yep. Here's uh, you know here's some standard procedures that we've trained to that we're going to employ. So it, we were fortunate at the time that the 
Um, procedures we were training to were very similar to what we needed to employ in Iraq. Um, and we were on a uh, part of a coalition with a large US Air Force contingent and mm. Royal Air Force contingent um, and international partners. And, and ultimately, um, they were very good at bringing Australia into their team and, and, and um, showing us uh, the ropes. Given that Australia had not deployed combat aircraft up to until a that conflict point, conflict for for many decades. Yeah. So, what was the inter- exchange of ideas like between USAF, RAF, and RAAF? Yeah, it was it was very informal exchange, but uh, there was a great kind of social network on the base. Um, uh, there may have been a bar or two involved, um, <laughs> and there were plenty of opportunities to to talk about the different ways that, that squadrons do business. And so you all bonded very well. And yeah, great. very quickly, very quickly. So it was a quite a quick uh, operation from 75 Squadron's perspective. So from arrival to departure was in the order of three months. Yeah. Um, uh, but it was un- unlike anything, I think, that the RAF had seen in many decades. So it was also very... Um, uh, I guess, influential on what Air Force sure. subsequently did in the uh, decade ahead. Did the RAF in Operation Falconer see any sort of action at all? Uh, yeah, there was um, there was quite a bit. Um, it was a mixture of offensive air support, so supporting the um, primarily the US Marines and the US Army yep. who were um, marching their way up uh, southern Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, and intermixed with that was uh, some pre-planned uh, strikes on uh, Iraqi uh, targets. Ground, ground targets. Ground targets, yeah. yes. Just go to the F-18 for a moment. Mm. I, I've read that it could also carry bombs. Yes. Uh, does that make it temporarily a bomber or is it a fighter who can carry bombs? What's the configuration there? Yeah, we talk about it as – it's a great question. We talk about the – F-18 and other aircraft like it as um, multi-role fighters. So um, they're designed to be utilised in either a uh, air-to-air capacity, so engaging other aircraft, or engaging targets on the ground. So um, some fighter aircraft are uh, purpose-designed for one specific mission, and they don't do uh, Something other else missions. Yeah. Um, so the F-18, a great aeroplane, um, is particularly versatile. And watching what uh, the RAF did with the Classic Hornet after Falconer, um, and by the time we took it back to Okra, it was a very different aeroplane. Um, so so the, the superstructure is the same, but the internals, the technology different, is that? Absolutely. So there was a whole raft of upgrades that went on to the aeroplane, um, uh, starting around the time of Falconer and concluding uh, about a decade later that fundamentally changed what the air- aircraft is capable of doing. So while the, you know, it, I liken it to the, you know, 1960s, 1970s Holden Commodore, the, the frame was the same, but everything inside it and the way it was designed to employ had been fundamentally um, enhanced and improved. So I assume from that you're a Commodore fan, are you? I don't mind a Commodore. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Tell me then, with the F-18, tell me about the precision guided weaponry. Yeah, so that's one of the... the upgrades. Upgrades that I was just talking about. So um, t- 
to give the listeners an example, I think when most people think about um, uh, bombs coming off an aeroplane, uh, you know, they think about uh, the pilot releasing the bomb and the bomb just falling mm-hmm. under gravity uh, to the ground. And that's very much a, uh, you know, the way that uh, throughout history that aircraft have employed um air-to-surface munitions and bombs. Um, One of the technological advances, though, is uh, to provide or to place guidance kits on our uh, bombs so that once they come off the aeroplane, there's an ability for either the bomb itself or the pilot to manoeuvre where the bomb goes. Uh, And in its simplest form, there's there's two ways that we do that. One is to um, use a laser to... Uh, identify the target on the ground that we, yep. where we want the bomb to go and the bomb will uh, follow that laser beam down to the target. Uh, and the second way is uh, using GPS. So mm. we'll pre-plan where we want the bomb to go uh, and it will find its way to those particular coordinates. Yeah. And again, I suppose a technical question, uh, if a Hornet is engaged in a dogfight with, with another plane, an yes. enemy, yes. what is the capacity of the Hornet in terms of delivering munitions, I don't mean bombs, but bullets. Mm. How, how, not how many bullets have you got, but mm. how long can you last? Oh, I can answer the how many bullets. So there's 578 rounds. Oh, okay, thanks. In the, uh, the F-18, um, and it's essentially a Gatling gun. And um, So you don't waste them? No, uh, and they fire pretty quick as well. So you can uh, employ all of those munitions in um, under six seconds. Um, and they're twenty millimeter rounds as well, so quite a quite a capacity to uh, engage a target either in the air or on the ground. Um, one of the fantastic things that I'm really going to miss about the F-18 is is, is its ability to maneuver um, in a dogfight. Yeah, would be most important. It's, it, it's incredible in that capacity. It, um, uh, its ability to fight at slow speed. Um, is up there with any other fighter aircraft in the world. Um, some of the technological advances that I was talking about earlier in the in, in that environment include things like helmet-mounted displays. So now you as the pilot there, Gareth, can just, instead of needing to point at a target, you can just look over your shoulder uh, at the target. And your eyes engage, become the... And your eyes basically tell the munition, the air-to-air missile... Unbelievable to go. So yeah, it's. Uh, you keep on talking about one of the things you're going to miss in the yeah, F-18. Yeah. It's being retired 2021. Yeah, that's right. So why? It, yeah, if it's so good and you can upgrade it. Um, I think I'm probably. <laughs> I I am clearly uh, attached to the you're to the F-18. To the Makes sense. Um, so I'll certainly be sad to see it go. However. Um, we acquired them in the um, in the mid to late eighties. So they're getting um, old. They are getting on. So if you, you know, again going back to the the car analogy, so if you're trying to maintain a car that you purchased in the mid to late eighties, you're going to encounter the types of problems that you won't encounter with a um, a more modern vehicle. So those types of aging airframe issues uh, are a big part of it. Um, but probably the, the the main driving factor is is that the threat has changed. Of course, two thousand and four, you were uh, became fighter pilot of the year. That's 
pretty good. Yeah, uh, that's a long time ago, isn't it? So well, we're lucky yeah, we've got some uh, some better fighter pilots these days. So, so what's involved in getting that award? Uh, to be honest, I I haven't been too involved in. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, I think uh, I think I was uh, having a lot of fun at 75 Squadron at the time. I'd been flying the aeroplane for about three years. And, um, you know, again, I feel like I was just lucky that I was in, had the right mentors and was enjoying myself. And um, I love I love your yeah. modesty, Burry. I love your modesty. But Thanks, a well-deserved buddy. position to get in 2004. You had an exchange then to Canada in 2007. How did that come about and why? Yeah, so we used to have a um, exchange with the Royal Canadian Air Force on the Classic Hornet. Yep. Um, I was always interested in going overseas on an exchange, and the timing worked out uh, such that the Canadian exchange uh, was an option for me. Um, I thought I'd like to experience a different part of the world, um, and boy, was it different. In what way? Well, it was... uh, the base is located in uh, Cold Lake in northern Alberta, mm-hmm. um, and to be honest, I didn't think anywhere on the planet got that cold, so <laughs> minus 40 in the middle of winter, um, learning to operate and seeing how the Canadians function in that uh, northern Arctic environment uh, was incredibly uh, eye-opening, um, and I got to instruct um, uh, students in the Canadian Air Force to fly the F-18 as well. So I learned a lot about teaching and um, uh, my wife and I uh, had a great time exploring had you uh, had, Canada. Had, do you have children? Uh, we do now. We didn't Did at the you time. You didn't at the time. So um, uh, we, had, you know, we had grand plans that we were going to see all of Canada and uh, North America and, you know, at the end of our two and a half years, we'd, we'd barely seen um, uh, Canada, so... You we, got we, to yeah, see it. Yeah, we did. That's, that's a, an aspect of any defence force, and let's focus with the RAAF, that people listening now don't realise that, you know, the Air Force personnel are people and they have families, they have wives and husbands, etc. How difficult is that? Oh, I'm very fortunate. My wife's uh, an Air Force uh, member as well. Uh, we, we actually met through the Air Force and... Um, uh, you know, so I'm I'm lucky that um, my wife understands the the military life. Um, uh, but if you get posted to Iraq, she doesn't go with you. So right, but she has also been posted to uh, operations in the Middle East. So without you, know, you, without me. So I was daddy daycare for a while. Um, so you know, I'm lucky in that respect. But I guess to get back to the heart of your question. Um, Families are, are incredibly important to our capability, um, and you know, we're lucky that uh, our people are well supported by their family and loved ones um, who uh, are very understanding of short notice changes. Mm. Uh, they're very understanding of the um, the uncertainties that come with being in the military. Uh, and you know, certainly from a, a former perspective as CEO of 77 Squadron, I was constantly um, uh, you know, appreciative and amazed of what the families were doing sure, to support sure. them. How does the Royal Canadian Air Force mm. compare to the Royal Australian Air Force? 
Yeah, I think there, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, the size of the Air Forces are, are pretty comparable. The size of the country they're trying to, um, I guess, provide defence for is, mm-hmm. is similar. Um, uh, and the people, uh, you know, population is it has very similar values. So uh, there was a, there was a lot about it that was the same, uh, and then there was the natural differences. Yeah, 40, 40 minus forty degrees is yeah. a big difference, <laughs> especially yeah. coming from the Australian summer. Right, you leave Canada in two thousand and seven, but you go back in two thousand and twelve. Mm. How come? Yeah, again, I think it's just timing. I so at that stage of my career. Uh, I was interested in um, becoming a, a CEO uh, down track, and one of the stepping stones to do that is a, uh, a course that we refer to as Command and Staff College, and Australia has an exchange arrangement with a number of countries, uh, and I expressed an interest in doing an overseas uh, staff college and outspat a uh, Canada uh, course, so I uh, dusted off all my old Canadian things and rang up a few friends and said, I'm coming back to annoy you all. So yeah. uh, that was, that was a, um, unlike Alberta, that was to Toronto. So major city now um, uh, over closer to the east coast of North America. So uh, an amazing experience, but very different. Yeah. Living in- what, what season was that? So it was, it was a year, so I got to experience all of it. All seasons, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, all right, you've done 2012, you've been in Canada, you come back to Australia, but then in 2015, uh, we have Operation Okra, mm. and it's been going for a while, and mm. you got involved. How mm. did you get involved, and what was your role? Yeah, I, uh, I, got, uh, I was uh, attached to uh, the commander of the task unit in uh, Qatar, which was where the uh, Combined Air Operations Centre for coalition operations in the Middle East was being run out of. So think of it as a, uh, you know, command and control function. Mm. Uh, so I was assigned there to um, uh, provide the target engagement authority mm. function for Australian aircraft that were operating in that uh, operation against Daesh. Were they, they were flying F-18s? Yeah, yeah. right. So uh, when I arrived, 77 Squadron was actually the unit that was there yep. at that point in time um, under the command of the former CO. Uh, and um, uh, I was working with them daily uh, to provide the national approval, the Australian national approval for mm. our aircraft to engage targets over there. Yeah, that was late 2015. Mm. Um, How long did you stay there? Because I believe you were again back, you were leading 77 Squadron against Daesh and that was 2017, so that's almost two years later. Yeah, so I uh, finished that role and when I came back to Australia, that was the point that I was uh, posted to take command at 77 Squadron. So... The squadron arrived back in Australia. I arrived back in Australia around a similar time. And then a few weeks later, I took command of the squadron. So uh, it just so happened that... You go back. Yeah, within that period, uh, 77 Squadron was uh, tasked to go back to the Middle East. So in a lot of respects, it was good to see both sides of the operation, both from a command and control perspective, but Mm. then to go over and see it from the viewpoint of what the squadron was doing and seeing um 
you know, that kind of rounded it out for me. Mm. As a lay person, mm. uh, I think, all right, I'm in a jet, mm. I'm a fighter pilot, mm. there are things called surface-to-air missiles, mm. Mm. Uh, and they don't have a pilot, they have radar and they can see you. Mm. Does that concern you? And, and what action can you do to stay up in the air? Yeah, uh, again, great question. So... Uh, I'm going to give you an equally vague response of it. No, that's it, all right. It, it no, depends. vague's good. <laughs> it depends. It is one of the uh, environments that we train our people to operate in. Uh, the aircraft have systems on them that are... It, what's that? Can you not pick the sound of the engine? Sounds like an F-18 to me. Good on you. Uh, right. the, the aircraft have systems on them that is, are designed to detect if they're being uh, shot at. Um, and then in response to that, uh, aircraft, uh, aircrew are taught manoeuvres uh, and things of that nature to try and evade. Obviously, it, it starts at, um, uh, at, at the planning stage. So, you know, we will try and identify and either neutralise or avoid uh, those types of threats before we even get near them. So you're in the plane. Yeah. In the plane you have the facility to know when you are being targeted or only when a missile has actually been fired? Uh, it depends. Uh, I'm going to keep giving you vague answers here. Um, but uh, it really does depend. It depends on the type of system uh, that's trying to engage you. Sure. Um, Going back to the context of, of Okra, though, uh, if you're, if um, the listeners will recall, you know this was very much focused on uh, ISIS or Daesh. Yes. Um, and uh, you know while they were a very credible military capability, um, it was very much a, um, a a ground-focused campaign. So we were. You weren't fighting aircraft. No, and we were we were very much supporting. Uh, the Iraqi security forces and our coalition partners, including Australians on the ground, uh, in that international effort to degrade and defeat Daesh. So. Sure. Does the F-18 have heads-up display in front of you or in the helmet? It's got both. Um, so the heads-up display has been there as long as I've been flying the aeroplane. So you're um, pretty used to and it. And it's fantastic. Um, the... The helmet um, provides that added ability now to identify targets either in the air or on the ground uh, and to be able to engage them uh, without necessarily having to point your aeroplane at them. So would I be right in assuming, and you can be vague if you want to be, but am I right in assuming that a, a jet, a fighter pilot now is more not going looking for a dogfight, but to be off and determine what's likely to happen ahead and take the appropriate action and give information to people on the ground to blah, blah, blah. Is that a fair enough assumption? Yeah, I think so. It's very much, it's always been that way. Like It's always been about trying to have more information than your opponent, whether your opponent's in the air or on the ground, mm-hmm. um, such that you can employ tactics that will you know, achieve the outcome that you're trying to achieve. So um, when you start talking about modern tactics and modern aircraft, I believe you've already um, done a podcast with um, with Darren Clare, but things like 
um, uh, F-35 and the way that it um, attempts to mask its position, the quality, yeah. the, stensors, the, the quality of the sensors on the aeroplane, its ability to detect things without being detected in return. Like that, that's the next evolution, if you like. So mm. that hasn't changed as a concept. It's just our way of going about doing it has fundamentally changed. So next year, mm. or in, whenever it comes around, mm. you're going to do the conversion to F-35s. Mm. Does that mean you'll be back, oh, I was going to say on the ground, does that mean you'll be back in the air flying on regular missions or regular sorties? Yeah, I can't wait for this. But, uh, <laughs> Air Force, you want to get out of the office, don't yeah. you? Yeah, and uh, Air Force... Uh, another plug here, I guess, for the flexibility of employment. Uh, so traditionally, someone in my position uh, would um, either have to depart the Air Force and go on to do other things or continue to progress through the traditional uh, rank structure. Yep. Um, uh, several years ago, Air Force introduced a, a specialist air crew stream, which uh, allows you and Air Force to identify a mutually agreeable way to um, uh, and continue flying, primarily flying-focused uh, duties, um, such that you can give back that experience mm. and then in return you get to keep doing things that you enjoy doing. So, you know, I'm very fortunate that, that was uh, an option for me and uh, I jumped at it, so I get to go back. I'll get demoted at the end of this year. You'll lose rank. Yeah, lose rank, um, and uh, I'll get to go and uh, instruct. I'll learn to fly the F-35 and then ultimately uh, instruct on it. So, a silly question, why do you have to lose rank? Why can't you keep your rank and still fly? Uh, it's a function of the uh, the scheme that was set up, and if you think about it, it, it makes perfect sense. You, the CO of the squadron is the same rank as what I'm currently wearing and uh, he, he or she doesn't need a bunch of know-it-alls walking around <laughs> with the same <laughs> rank on their shoulder telling them uh, how to how to do things. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that makes sense that uh, it's never been a driver for me, the, the rank progression. So um, I'm quite happy with Are that. You're happy flying. I can, I can appreciate that. Uh, uh, let's just go back to the family bit. Uh, Louise is your wife, is that right? Yes, what, yeah. What does she do in the RAAF? So Louise is a civil engineer, um, so referred to as airfield engineers in the, in the RAF, but a, a civil engineer is her background and experience. Um, and uh, we've managed to enjoy postings together throughout our career. Uh, Louise um, is an amazing woman, amazing mum, uh, she's currently working with the uh, F-35 project assisting. Oh, she got the, ahead of you. Yeah, she yeah. <laughs> She gets uh, more to do with uh, F-35 than I do, um, but she's currently assisting with the, the build of the facilities for F-35 that's okay. going on up at Tyndall. Okay. Um, and you have three young children? or We do, yeah, three terrors, so... Uh, all boys, all girls, or mixture? Yeah, two, two boys and then... Uh, the youngest who's got exceptional leadership qualities is uh, is our girl. So there you go, yeah. another another fighter pilot. Yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, Are you familiar with Flight Lieutenant Emily Willis? I am. I am. So because Emily she's going to be one of the ladies we're talking to. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Did you train her that. to fly? <laughs> uh, I, I was her CO at Seventy Seven Squadron. So um, 
uh, M arrived straight out of her Hornet training. So yep. similar to my experience up at 75, um, she was one of two uh, two uh, ladies that were our first uh, fast jet F-18 pilots. I love the fact that the RAAF has been very mindful of incorporating males and females into its service. And I think ahead of maybe even the other services in, in that respect. Yeah, I think it's... It, it, it value adds to yeah, everything we do uh, as an organisation. Uh, it adds to uh, richness of ideas, and um, you know, at the end of the day, those those uh, ladies and pioneers in an air combat group context have have shown us that. It, if it you get the matter. opportunity as a dad, mm. when your children come home and say, "We've got." invited parents to class to talk to them about their job make mm. sure you go because if you can stand up and say i'm an f-35 jet fighter pilot mm. the kids will be gobsmacked <laughs> yeah i don't know my uh one of my boys is just uh bugging me like crazy to bring him out to the simulator at the moment so oh, how uh, old is he he's he's eight so i've got to do that before they pull the uh, f-18 simulator apart here and fantastic uh, take him through it so fantastic. they're starting to show a bit of interest which is good Grant, you're a great ambassador for the RAAF, uh, you really are, um, and you've done some amazing things and been involved in some amazing things, and the fact that you're going to take demotion to fly the F-35s, that's, that's remarkable. Yeah, well, someone's, someone's got to do it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Grant. Thanks, Gareth. Cheers, mate. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping, and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.